Welcome to the Burnett Breakdown, where I, Hunter Burnett, keep up with the news so that you don't have to. Today we're going to be talking lots about the economy, jobs report, a labor market, as well as Ukraine and Latin America. In national news, there really wasn't that much, I believe, that was important this week outside of the state of the United States economy. Uh, the jobs report was released on Friday, and I'll just go ahead and say this. I am not an economist, and a lot of this stuff goes over my head, but I, uh, I've i done enough reading that hopefully I'm able to uh, give you an, an accurate enough uh, understanding about the state of the United States economy. So that jobs report, uh, the Labor Department uh, released that jobs report on Friday uh, and said that the U.S. economy added 467,000 jobs in the month of January. Uh, they also went back and revised some numbers from November and December and saw job growth combined for about 700,000 higher than previously reported. Uh, so to get a better understanding of the jobs that were created in the months of November and December, they actually have to wait until January to, give a, to get a better understanding. And so uh, it turns out that they had underreported those jobs back when they came out with those numbers in November and December. Now, these... Uh, this was a huge surprise to many economists. Some economists had even predict predicted that there would be some job loss seen in January due to uh, Omicron and the peak that th that was. And uh, the surprising, even more surprising thing about these numbers is that these numbers were probably still negatively impacted by the rise of Omicron. So uh, I read that the... Uh, the Labor Department does their surveys on the in these reports on around January 12th or the 12th of every month. And so that really was and maybe not necessarily the peak of Omicron, but pretty close to the peak of Omicron. And so uh, this these numbers are with that peak in mind. Uh, and so overall, from what I've read, uh, most economists see this as a, a very good uh jobs report better than anybody was really anticipating. Uh, unemployment rate rose slightly to 4%. Wages climbed 5.7% in January from a year earlier. And then two numbers that I think are particularly important to pay attention to, the participation rate, which jumped to 62.2%. That is the highest since the start of the pandemic. The labor participation rate is the percentage of all people of working age who are employed or are actively seeking work. And then the prime labor force participation rate was up to 82%. The reason why I think these participation rate uh, numbers are so important is because the at the start of the pandemic, you had people either move or lose their job or leave their jobs or not go back to work because they didn't want to get COVID. And so they were more cautious about getting COVID. And so that meant that they didn't go back to work. Or you have people who were on unemployment and getting unemployment benefits, which disincentivized them from going back into the labor force. And what a lot of economists were worried about is that you may have had people who were close to retirement age, weren't necessarily planning on retiring in the near future, but in within the next few years and that COVID actually just made them decide that they're going to go ahead and retire and that those people were never going to go back into the uh, the labor force. And so part of this tight uh, job market that we have right now is largely because this participation rate has been suppressed because of both COVID and uh, those retirements that I've been talking about. So the, as those participation rates go up, we should see the job market, the tight job market go down, which means that hopefully the wage, the push of wages up will uh, not be as uh, as impacted or at, go as high, leading to less inflation. Because right now that companies are struggling so much to find people to work that they are having to bid up 
their wages in order to incentivize people to work for them, which then will drive up prices, leading to the inflation that we see, at least part of it. And so if this labor participation rate can, can, can continue to go up and increase, then that means that companies will not have to bid up wages so much and that hopefully inflation can be a little bit more tame than people are projecting. One caveat to this the Bureau of Labor did incorporate new estimates of the population based on the latest census data in this. So they took the data that they got from 2020's census, and they this was the first report that they actually applied that new population data to the jobs report. So what that did is it actually found they found that the working age of population decreased, which kind of automatically bumps up the labor participation rate, even though maybe more people aren't working. It just is that the working age population has decreased. And so that is one thing to look out. But overall, I think most economists has saw this jobs report as a huge positive. Continuing with the job market talk, the uh, Wall Street Journal had an interesting article about teachers quitting and getting new jobs in different fields. Now, all in all transparency, I am a teacher, so I typically care more about education stories or what's happening in the education world than most people. But I do think this is a pretty important story worth paying attention to. So the rate of people quitting jobs in private educational services rose more than in any other industry in 2021. 550,000 resignations happened from the private education sector between uh, January and November. And then more than 800,000 resignations were handed in during the same period by people in state and local education. Quits in the educational services sector rose 148% in that time frame. Local education quits rose 40%. And then according to LinkedIn, the share of teachers on the site who left for a new career increased by 62% last year. They are getting jobs in other industries such as IT services, consulting, hospitals, and software development. Now, this is on top of a drastic decrease in enrollment in college of, colleges of education around the country that has been uh, happening over the course of the last few years. So what you have is you already have less teachers entering the field in the form of the colleges of ed around the country, and now you have teachers leaving the field and going and working in other industries. Now, there's so many reasons for why teachers would do this. Number one, teachers the, the skills that a teacher has to have, and again, I am a teacher, so I am uh, very biased in my assessment of this, but the skills that teachers have to have are you know skills that are, can apply in so many different industries. You have to take in a ton of data, a ton of information, and then boil it down to the most important information and then communicate it effectively. You have to lead an entire classroom. You have to get people on the same page. You have to direct people in the same direction doing the same thing. You have to uh, constantly co collaborate. Like the, the skills that you develop as a teacher apply in so many different industries. And the article even mentioned that these other industries like to hire teachers because they know that they will be really successful in these new industries. So if you have teachers being not just leaving education and then, you know, re retiring or going home or doing whatever, but they're actually getting new jobs in different fields and, and at a huge rate that you have, and then you already don't have the pipeline of teachers that you have had in recent years because the pipeline is uh, being drained because people aren't becoming teachers. What you're going to have is a, you always have this quote unquote teacher shortage but it is only going to continue to get more and more serious. Now, a large 
reason, surely, why so many people are quitting is because of the virtual schools and Zoom schools that they are that make life harder on these teachers, and they don't want to do that. That's not what they signed up for, and they're so they're leaving, and they're exhausted from the year of doing all that, and so they're leaving. So I understand why so many teachers are doing this, but this is going to if this these trends continue. Yes, there's always seems to be a teacher shortage, but if these trends continue, this is going to get really serious very quickly. And things are going to have to change if these uh, if education is at, at all going to be taken serious. And I say that because one quotation from the the article that I thought was really just summed it all up for me is is quote for some former teachers the ability to eat lunch or go to the bathroom at a time of their choosing has been a change. Like that right there is why there are so many teachers quitting. You can you have twenty minutes to eat lunch. You can't go to the bathroom until you have your class, uh, your planning period, which who knows when that is. It could be in four periods and five hours, okay? You have, you can, you have to hold it. You're, you're on your feet all day. You have the, the perks of not teaching. I can see why they're appealing because teaching is a very difficult job. And so if you have this, like, I, I think this is, I don't know when this will really become pertinent, but this is a trend to continue to watch because as teachers leave the field and you don't have the teachers there to replace, the field of education is going to get uh, ugly very quickly and adjustments will have to be made and those adjustments are going to be interesting to follow. Now on to international news and continuing with the economic theme, the um, uh, the economies of Latin America. So the economies of Latin America have uh, suffered pretty enormously. They, uh, Latin American countries, and before I continue, I know that Latin America is a, a fraught term. I know that not everyone in these countries would consider themselves Latin America. I understand all that, but it's just the best way to communicate what basic region of the world that I am talking about. But Latin American countries suffered nearly 30% of worldwide deaths from COVID, despite having just 8% of the population. Now, this is a just drastic number, if you can imagine. They disproportionately were impacted by COVID and had and faced COVID deaths, which, as you can imagine, would impact the economies of these this region. So from 2003 to 2019, poverty fell from 45% to 30% across Latin America. This year, however, the region will grow just 2.4%, far weaker than the rest of the world, and down from a 6.8% expansion in 2021. This is There's all sorts of factors. Like I said, there's the COVID deaths. There's also slowing growth in China, which is a large buyer of various natural resources from the re- region, like oil, iron, soybeans, copper, etc. And China is the number one trading partner of countries like Brazil, Argentina, and then most of the other countries in South America. You also have rising U.S. interest rates, which could spark more volatility as it could actually weaken the Latin American currencies. So as the U.S. dollar, the interest rates go up, that that could lead inflation to continue to climb higher. So they're already uh, encountering and facing inflation in pretty high numbers, and that inflation could just continue. Now, this has just enormous impacts on the United States, not simply because the United States and all the, you know, economy of the world are interconnected, but it has political impacts in Latin America that could impact the United States. So Chile and Peru elected leftist presidents who said they would institute economic policies that include more social spending for the poor. So again, if you've got these presidents who are very left, and and in Latin America, left is very left, especially for America, they're very left. And they want to 
boost up social spending for the poor in the time of already high inflation, then all this is going to do, just economically, is going to increase inflation, which can, which can make the situation spiral out of control. At the same time, you also have polls that show in Colombia and Brazil that voters may do the same and elect leftist leaders with these same economic principles. So in other words, not only are the Latin American economies been just hammered by COVID and the uh, in the last year or so, but they also could make things work, things like inflation worse by electing these presidents. And so we see that in this region, you have a substantial capital outflow in terms of GDP to other regions. So Latin America's six biggest economies sent $114 billion abroad in the first nine months of last year. That is usually a sign that you don't want your money, investors do not want their money where they are, and they're sending it overseas. And there's always a lot of people who send their money overseas for a variety of reasons, but this is a huge huge number compared to recent years. And so you have a really rough situation in Latin America right now, economically speaking. The reason why this is such a big deal is because you already have immigration being central issue in the United States. Most of these immigrants are coming not just from Mexico, but from Central America and from Latin America. And if the economies in this region would decline significantly, like I already said, the economies, relatively speaking, of the last 15, 20 years in Latin America have been decent, have been pretty good. The economies have been growing at a pretty good rate, not in every country and not equally, but nonetheless, the entire region kind of in general has been a really good situation. If the economies of this region decline markedly, that could lead to a huge influx of immigra uh, immigration to the United States. With immigration already being a fraught in issue in the United States and good conditions in Latin America, there's no telling what this will be, what immigration will look like, and the immigration uh, situation into America will look like if the economies of Latin America will decrease and go downhill. And so this has enormous impacts in the United States, enormous impacts that we may not see until a couple of years down the line as is these economies get worse and worse and people become more and more desperate and so the and and whoever is president at the time whether it's biden or it, it takes a few more years and it's not biden or it's another democrat or it's a republican whatever it is they're going to have to face the immigration issue if these economic if these economies in latin america continue to go downhill and these people become desperate enough to make the trek up north to the united states if the border is already an issue and it has been it's been an issue uh, politically for biden it's been an issue in general for voters. If it continues to be an issue, then it will only increase as an issue and become more serious as these economies go downhill and these people make it to the United States, or attempt to at least. Similarly, you have uh, the situation, the economic situation in Ukraine also being pretty precarious right now. So I've talked a lot about Ukraine and Russia, the situation there now. Russia's got over 100,000. The numbers have it now at over 120,000 troops along the border, uh, along its border with Ukraine. A lot of intelligence of officials in the West have said that they worry about invasion, not just worry, but they think that it is imminent. And so because of that, the economy of Ukraine has been pretty drastically impacted. So businesses have paused investments into Ukraine. Now, these aren't necessarily old, like, so old investments are continuing to operate. So old businesses or old entities are continuing to operate in Ukraine, but new investments are being paused until some clarity comes from the situation. So many biz businesses are basically in a wait and see mode. Because of this, this has an impact on the Ukrainian currency, which is under pressure and has declined 4% against the dollar since the beginning of the world, world, since the beginning of the year, which makes it one of the world's worst performing currencies. 
This is a reminiscent of 2014 because after Russia invaded Crimea in 2014, Ukraine's economy entered a deep recession and its currency lost roughly 70% of its value. If Russia were to invade, the economy of the Ukraine of Ukraine would but plummet more than likely. And so and so right now the Ukrainian economy is largely uh, waiting on to waiting to see what Russia does and is at the mercy of Putin and the Russian government. So because of this, the Ukrainian government has has also been more uh, has preached a or or talked about the uh, imminent uh, invasion of Russia in different terms than the United States has and other Western countries. So the, the West and the United States and NATO have been very vocal and very open about the reality that Russia could very well invade and that it is imminent. And Ukraine and Ukrainian president has actually said it's not that serious. Now, a lot of people, maybe there's inside it, maybe he knows more than the United States does. That's a possibility. He's closer to the situation. So maybe he knows that Putin is just kind of grandstanding, and this is just to get some uh, concessions from NATO, and he's not actually going to invade, so he's really not that worried. But he, the Ukrainian uh, president, is telling his people, don't worry about it, go about your normal life. And so he could very well have that knowledge and uh, be making the right decision, or he could very well be looking out for the economy of Russia because or uh, of Ukraine, because if he were to say it's absolutely imminent, get ready, then their economy would absolutely tank. And so you see this balancing act of he is faced with this Russian invasion that could be imminent according to Western intelligence, but he doesn't want to hurt the economy because he saw the effects of the Russian invasion into Crimea in 2014. And so you're getting these two messages, one from the Western countries like and in NATO that are saying that it's imminent, and then Ukraine who's saying, no, don't worry, don't panic, everything will be okay. And then speaking of NATO, this situation with Ukraine and Russia has really opened up divisions within NATO and made them apparent for the public to see, particularly with Germany's relationship with NATO. So if we are at a kind of a quick list of all the things that Germany has not done in terms of their support for Ukraine, like other NATO countries have done. So first, Germany has refused to join the U.S. and other countries in shipping defensive weapons to Ukraine. They've blocked NATO partners from giving Kiev German weapons. The chancellor has refused to publicly commit to freezing the Nord Stream 2 gas pipeline if Russia invades. They've been asking for an exemption in future Western sanctions against Moscow that would allow it to keep buying gas from Russia, and they sent 5,000 second-hand helmets to Ukraine, to which the mayor of Kiev asked, what will they send next, pillows? So obviously you can see that uh, Kiev is not happy with Germany, how Germany has not has failed to support them right now. Uh, I can't imagine other NATO countries are uh, excited to deal with Germany right now. But the reason why Germany is being this way, the reason why they are not going to defend Ukraine, they're not quick to defend Ukraine like some of the or support Ukraine like some of these other NATO countries, is because of their reliance on Russian oil. So Russia accounts for over half of Germany's gas and a quarter of oil imports. And the global market does not have enough capacity to make up the loss of Russian gas in Germany if Russia were to invade and the, the Germany's access to that gas would be lost. So this is a really important uh, 
consideration for Germany and the German leader because especially when we think of economic sanctions that could possibly be put on Russia, that Russia, uh, if they invade, would get get slapped with economic sanctions by Western countries and NATO, but Germany may not be as uh, willing to participate in those sanctions, or would those sanctions would have a huge effect on Germany because they are so reliant on Russian oil and gas, Russian energy. So this is huge leverage for Putin, and Putin, I think, knows, obviously he knows, because I know, and I know he definitely knows, that Germany is very, is so reliant on their gas and on their energy that they can probably make these divisions within NATO grow wider, and I think that may be part of what he's trying. Whether he invades or not, he has definitely, absolutely showed there's deep divisions and disagreements between NATO countries, in in particular Germany. So this is something to keep uh, an eye on as we move forward, because if NATO begins to break and these divisions begin to form and Russia begins to really take advantage of these divisions, whether it's with Ukraine or not, that could have serious implications for the stability of Europe. And I know that it seems like, well, if something happens in Europe and a war breaks out in Europe, then that doesn't really affect us. But as every conflict in Europe has shown us, if so, if a conflict breaks out in, in Europe, the United States is inevitably going to be drawn into it in some capacity. So if this NATO alliance, this alliance that has lasted since World War II and has largely created a very stable international order, if that can be uh, exploited by Putin, then the world as we know it and the international order as we know it could change drastically. And then finally for international news, the leader of ISIS uh, killed himself and four members of his family during a nighttime raid by U.S. Special Operation Forces in northwest Syria early Thursday morning. The two-hour raid on a residence, which included Apache, uh, Apache gunships, airstrikes, and drones, there were 13 bodies recovered at the scene. I'm not going to try and pronounce this guy's name because I'm not going to be able to pronounce it. I'm going to butcher it. But President Biden, uh, with these 13 bodies kind of in mind, uh, said that, uh, quote, knowing that this terrorist had chosen to surround himself with families, including children, we made a choice to pursue a special forces raid at a much greater risk to our own people rather than targeting him with an airstrike. We made this choice to minimize civilian casualties. So this was to kind of show the world we did this raid because we could have just droned them, but we knew that there was going to be casualties if we did that. And so instead of that, we actually risked our own people's lives in order to limit civilian casualties. And the United States government has stuck by their story that he blew himself up and that it was him, the leader of ISIS, that uh, killed all of these other people. Uh, The Biden administration was pressed on that. And they said that they would give evidence in time because they've just so far, we the only evidence, quote unquote, that we have is that the government has told us that this is what they did. And then I believe other governments have acknowledged that as well. So, But we have the, – the press has not been provided with any actual evidence to show that, to prove that. And they, when they have been pressed, have kind of been reluctant to 
they they want the, wanted the press to just take their word for it, and obviously the press doesn't need to do that. So I do want to just double check and make sure that the government is more forthcoming with their evidence. And then once we see that evidence to confirm that this was the case and that they weren't killing a bunch of people just to get this one guy. But I mean, either way, killing this one guy, the leader of ISIS, is going to be a pretty is a is a big deal, and is a very good foreign policy achievement for the Biden administration. He was so so ISIS was actually in a little bit of a resurgence, nothing like they were in, in you know 2012, 13 when they were taking over large swaths of Iraq. But ISIS was they had just uh, done a prison break in Syria where they had it was unsuccessful, but that was a bold move, and so there was some energy, some momentum. They're beginning to recruit in pretty uh, significant numbers again. So this it's it's nothing. It's not going to kill ISIS. Okay, ISIS and, and the, the organization of ISIS and any of these Islam Islamist extremist groups are going are structured in such a way that one leader's death isn't going to kill the entire thing. However, the leader of ISIS being killed is going to drastically reduce the momentum that they had. So this is a huge foreign policy win for the Biden administration. Anytime terrorists are killed, I'm all for it uh, because he was uh, responsible for many deaths and would have been responsible for many more had he been allowed to continue to live. And now it is time for the breakdown of the breakdown where I talk about and discuss my newsletter, The Burnett Breakdown. If you do not follow or subscribe, it is on Substack for you to read. And this week's newsletter was all about this podcast. So I have been recording this podcast for the last three weeks, but I have not been promoting it really, except for sending it to a few people, mainly for feedback. But this week, I'm actually going to start promoting this podcast. And my newsletter was the start of that. And in my newsletter, I basically just talked about why I started this podcast. I started this podcast because I really, first of all, I, I've always wanted to start a podcast, and I enjoy the news, I enjoy politics, and I enjoy talking about them, so podcast is perfect for me. But I really wanted to focus this podcast on people who want to keep up with the news, but don't want to, but every time they feel like they keep up with politics, they get exhausted. I hear this all the time that I, I feel like I should be informed, but it's just so exhausting. And I think that's so true because there's two types of people, really. There's or, or there's usually considered two types of people. There's the people who see politics and love it. And that's, I'm not going to, I'm going to be honest, that's me. I love politics. I'll read about politics all day. I love being in the know about all of the political happenings in the world. And so I'll read the op-eds, the newsletters that everyone's are talking, everyone is talking about because I enjoy that kind of thing. So there's those types of people. Those types of people are entertained by politics. Then there's people who don't care about politics whatsoever. Like, they just don't care. They've never cared. They're never going to care. They'd rather focus their attention on other things. And I also think that's fine. I think that's a lot of other people. I, I don't know how much of a, a segment of the population that is, but I know plenty of people that are like that, and more power to them. I, I want them to stay out of the political realm. I hope they never have to think about politics. The goal of politics should be so that they never have to think about it and that they are just not necessarily taken care of in a pejorative sense, but that just that everything around them is going well enough that they don't have to think about politics. So I want politics to be uh, not in their face all the time. But I do think there is a significant, and I would argue majority of the population, that wants to be informed about politics. They are the people who they want to, when they go vote, they want to know exactly what they are they stand for, but they don't want to be to for politics to be their form of entertainment. 
They don't find it entertaining. And so when they try, and that's why they constantly are saying that they want to be informed, but they, they feel exhausted because so much about politics now is nonsense. And that is my goal of this podcast is to make sure it's not po- is not nonsense. And so that is why, and I talk about this in the newsletter, why I want to limit it to 30 minutes so that I'm not ranting and rambling on. I want to limit it to once a week so that, because a daily podcast is fine, but Nothing really happens in the course of one day that is significant enough to talk about to have one every single day. So what happens is that because you have to fill up a podcast, you end up just talking about whatever to talk to fill up that time, and that whatever becomes just is just utter nonsense that doesn't matter. My my whole idea of that is is if if at the beginning of the week if something big happens and, the, and that it's going to have a significant impact on a large number of people, that at the end of the week if it is not if it is still in, it will still be important. If it was important at the beginning of the week, it'll be important at the end of the week. If it seemed important at the beginning of the week, but by the end of the week it has faded out of everyone's conversation and no one's talking about it anymore, that's because it wasn't important in the begin to begin with. And so I really want the week to be a filtering process to determine what news is actually worthy of talking about. And what I want really out of this podcast is not necessarily for it to be unbiased. Look, I'm a conservative and I will, I'm will i open about that. And I want to interpret and, and talk about the news through a conservative lens and, and discuss how I see the world and uh, conservatism being promoted, not because I want to quote-unquote win arguments, because I think uh, conservatism is, is what leads to the greatest amount of prosperity to the greatest number of people. It leads to the most amount of liberty and prosperity than any other uh, system, any other ideology. And so I I really love conservatism for that reason. That's why I believe in it. So I am a conservative, and I will promote conservative ideas. But what I want is to talk about things that actually matter. What I don't want to do is I don't want to complain about what how the media is covering something. That is an easy thing to do. It's easy to, to talk about how so-and-so covered this event or the headline or what this person said. That is that doesn't matter. Okay, it doesn't matter what someone like Tucker Carlson said. It just doesn't matter unless what he says is actually something that will have a deep impact in the political world. And so I don't want to focus on stuff like that. I I don't want to focus on on things that people tweeted, on what politicians tweeted and what they said because largely that doesn't matter either. What I want to focus on is things that I believe will impact everyday life. If it impacts you, if, if I believe it will impact you or impact me in a tangible way, or at least could impact us in a tangible way, then I want to talk about it. But if it doesn't have anything to do with us, because so much of it, of politics now, is just gossip. It's gossip for adults. It's, did you hear so-and-so had this affair? This this person did this, or this person was fired for this. It's Okay, it doesn't matter. Like, none of that has any bearing on my life. And that's the kind of stuff that people get tired and exhausted of. They keep, quote-unquote, keep up with politics, but really they see all of that, and they're just like, I don't care. It's just not that important. And so and it's not worth the effort to actually get to the stuff that matters. And so my goal in this podcast is to kind of is for me to do all of that work of, of filtering out all that nonsense to get to the stuff that actually matters and then hopefully communicate that to you. Now, that doesn't mean that uh, that I, I still have to implement my values. I still have to make decisions about what is important, and what isn't. And sometimes you may disagree with that. And that's completely fine. But just know that that is my goal, that the, the things I talk about, I actually think are important. And that is why I focus on international news as well. International news, as I say in the newsletter, gives us a broader perspective about the world that we live in, not just so that we can know what the world is like and that we can know how it impacts us, but also because it gives us a better perspective on our own country. Okay, We can 
get really spoiled in America because America is a great country. And when we look to other countries around the world, it gives us a better idea about how great our country is. And so that's why I spend so much time talking about international news and because it actually has a significant impact on our lives because government is meant to protect us from enemies, foreign and domestic. So if you like this podcast, please like, subscribe, download, do all those things that people always say to do for their at the end of their podcast. I assume that it, I don't really know what it does, but I assume that it helps somehow. Please do that, and I hope that you will join again next week.